Good morning. Well, uh, this last, it was in this last week or two, uh, my sons and I watched a show on Disney Plus where they do different uh, brain games, it's called, where, where they do things that are illusions, they mess with your mind, and, and uh, uh, they showed this one particular illusion, uh, it's called the gray box illusion. You may have seen something similar, if you can throw that up there for me, Lizzie. Um, it's this picture of two boxes, and they ask you, which of these two boxes is the darkest color? And, and I have an automatic response to that. I'm like, well, it's clearly the top one. I don't, I don't think it's too difficult. But then they mess with your mind, and they say, actually, those two boxes are the same color. If you'll go to the next slide there, Lizzie. If you'll take your finger and hold it up across that center line and close an eye... Does that mess with your brain or what? <laughs> suddenly, suddenly they're not two different shades at all, but rather they're the same exact shade. It's one of those uh, illusions that your, your, your eyes see and your brain tries to make sense of, and so it, it, it's connecting different dots, but, but in actuality, um, it's, 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 it's a perception that has fooled us. It's a, it's, it's a perception, that, and what we're realizing is what we're actually seeing isn't what really is there. Isn't that a fascinating thing? What our, mind, what our eyes are telling our mind we're seeing isn't actually what's there. And, and our perceptions of reality can be fooled. Now, Scripture tells us that there is a spiritual war that's being raged, and whether or not we're aware of it, it's going on all around us. You see... There's a whole other world being lived out on a spiritual plane that, that we cannot see, but it is as real as you and I are in this room right now. There is a spiritual war that's going on, and whether or not our eyes register it, whether or not our senses tell our brain what's going on, there is a spiritual battle that's being raged, whether or not we acknowledge it. In, in 1955, there was a conflict in Northeast Asia, and it developed into what was known as the Vietnam War. And over the next two decades, for 20 years, this war went on, and media coverage brought the war right into people's living rooms as never before. Um, no longer was it just newspaper reports that would come in a day or two later, or numbers that were seen on a page. No longer was it uh, newsreels or propaganda, but rather people were watching in real time what was happening, and the, the things that the public was often shielded from. And, and there was a sudden uh, awareness of the reality of the horrors of war that was going on. It was, it was being broadcast and people were, were mortified at the death and the carnage and, and the loss of life. And, and, and what so often goes overlooked or goes unseen is overlooked. And so many wars that are fought in other countries and so many things that we aren't aware of, it's overlooked and so it's forgotten. But, but what we saw in like, uh, and for instance, this uh, Vietnam War, suddenly the reality is brought to us and we realize what's really going on. So we're concluding this series today in 1 Peter chapter 5. We're going to be in 1 Peter 5 if you want to open your Bibles with me there. Today we're concluding the series. We're actually in the last day of February as well. We're going to be moving into March and spring and all that. It's going to be exciting. And Pastor Todd is going to be kicking off a dynamic series next week. You are not going to want to miss it. But right now we're finishing 1 Peter, so stick with me. Um, so Peter is concluding this, uh, this letter, this first letter he's written to these churches. And these churches are situated in what is now modern-day Turkey. And he's writing this letter to them 
And this section of his letter, as he's getting ready to conclude it, is actually addressed to the leaders of the church. Um, it's, it, and he's calling them to guard the flock. He's calling them uh, to protect the flock, the believers, but how, and themselves, in protecting themselves, they then can protect the flock. Because how many of you know, if you don't guard yourself, you can't protect anyone else. That's why it's so important for leaders to guard their own hearts, because you are not much of a leader if you are spiritually dead. But, Paul, but, but what Peter writes is also so applicable to each one of us in this room. Whether or not you view yourself as a leader in the church or not, this is applicable to each one of us. So 1 Peter chapter 5, starting in verse 8, it says this. Peter says, Stay alert. Watch out. For your great enemy, the devil, he prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Stand firm against him and be strong in your faith. Remember that your family of believers all over the world is going through the same kind of suffering you are. In His kindness, God called you to share in His eternal glory by means of Christ Jesus. So, after you have suffered for a little while, He will restore, support, and strengthen you, and He will place you on a firm foundation. All power to Him forever. Amen. So Peter begins this section by saying, stay alert, with an exclamation point. He says, watch out for your great enemy, the devil. You see, Scripture tells us unequivocally that, and it teaches us that, that the devil, or Satan, is very much real. He's not just a, a literary example or some sort of metaphor, but rather the devil is a very real power in our world. In the 5th century, there was a book written in China called The Art of War by Sun Tzu. And there's a very familiar quote you're pro you've probably heard in this book, and it says, Know your enemy. Uh, there's a larger quote in the book that actually says, If you know your enemy and yourself, you need not fear the results of a hundred battles. You see, we need to have a strong theological understanding of our adversary. If Satan is real and he's in this world and he's our adversary, we then should know who he is. We should know all about him. So who is Satan? First of all, Satan is very powerful. If we go back and we can go through the Old Testament and read in, in Isaiah about how uh, Satan was a fallen angel. He was, he was, uh, he was beautiful, he was powerful, and, and he, he turned his back on God. And Satan is incredibly powerful. He's more powerful than you are. He's more powerful than I am. He's exceedingly wicked. He's deceptive and he's crafty. He passionately, passionately hates us. Sometimes he's subtle. The Bible says that he presents himself as an angel of light. And sometimes he roars like a lion. Uh, we were, yesterday our family went to uh, uh, Wildlife Safari down in, in Winston. And uh, there was... We, went, we got to see the lions actually a lot closer than I thought we would. And the size and strength of those animals is incredible. And uh, I don't know if you're aware, but actual African lions used to have their, their, their territories extend all the way up through what was Israel uh, thousands of years ago before they were hunted out. And so, and so for, for the author, for Peter to be writing this, people knew what lions were. They knew the power, the strength, the danger of lions, especially considering the technology of their day. It was a lot of hand-to-hand -hand combat if you were suddenly caught with a lion. 
Lions were a, a real risk. And so this is who Satan is. He's a real danger. He is strong. He is powerful. But there's also things we need to understand that Satan is not. Satan is not a god. He is a created being. He had a beginning. He was created. He is not, and I want to make this clear, he is not Jesus' brother. I've heard this in some circles. Um, Jesus is a part of the triune nature of God. He is part of the Godhead. He was the Word. The Bible says, in the beginning was the Word. There was no start to Jesus. He was in the beginning. He has existed since before time, whereas the devil was a created being. Satan, um, I've also seen these images. These drive me nuts, where it's an image of Satan right here on the world and Jesus over here on the world. And they're getting ready for some sort of cosmic arm wrestling or something. And it's like, if you don't like or share this picture, Jesus could lose. <laughs> Satan and Jesus are not some sort of diametrically equal, could, oh, if we, if, who, I hope Jesus can pull this one off. <laughs> they, are, they are not even close to being on the same level. You see, Satan is powerful. I want to make that clear. But he is not omnipotent. He is not all-powerful. Satan is crafty, but he is not omniscient. He doesn't know everything. He cannot see the future. He is wicked, yes, but he is not omnipresent. He cannot be all places at once. But I want to say, while Satan is not any of those things, Jesus is all of those things. Jesus is all places at once. Jesus does know all things that are to be known. Jesus is all-powerful, all-knowing, all that he is our almighty God. It's not even close. 1 John chapter 4, verse 4 says, Greater is he who is in me than he that is in the world. Satan is a defeated foe. He is a defeated foe. Yes, he is powerful, but he is defeated. You see, we see the devil coming against Job in the Old Testament. We see this story. And, but God, yet God restrains him from all he wants to unleash on Job. And, and he only lets him go so far. But yet, even in that restrained nature, we can see that the devil is unbelievably cruel. Am I right? He, he unleashes absolute mayhem on Job's life, death and destruction. But with Jesus, we go to the Old Testament here. Jesus, in the, in the New Testament, takes on the full cesspool of all humanity's sin upon himself. All of it. All for, uh, once and for all upon himself. And the devil comes with all he has unrestrained. He brought everything against Jesus. Every bit of hate. Every bit of his power he brought against Jesus in that moment at the cross. Thinking this will seal my victory. He held nothing back. It wasn't like I'm going to see what I can do here. He threw all of himself at Jesus that day. And for two days he had a party. For two days, he and the demons celebrated. But then Jesus took it. And what happened on the third day? Through the power of God, he was raised to new life. And I can imagine Jesus looking at the devil and going, Is that, is that all you got? Is that, is that it? And the defeat that Satan felt that day. Jesus triumphed over Satan on the cross, and the devil knew he was done. 
See, the fact that we were crucified with Christ then extends to us then, in turn, that victory is ours. Jesus' victory becomes our victory. Galatians 2.20 says, I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. So Satan's strength was taken with Jesus' victory on that day on the cross. We need to remember, whatever attack the enemy has for us, whatever he brings against against us, whether it be the subtle or it be the roar, no matter what, it has already been spent and exhausted, and it has failed. And all Satan can do to us as believers then is lie. That's all he has. All he can do against us is lie. If, and his power then, his strength comes if we believe his lies. So Peter fervently warns the believers here. He says, be alert. He saw the danger of making the fact of God's sovereignty an excuse for inactivity. He sees the believers, they're probably thinking, we're great, we we serve a risen God, He's all-powerful, He's almighty, He's defeated Satan. And because of the sovereignty of God, they became lackadaisical in their alertness to the attack of the enemy. You see, sometimes we neuter the devil. We see him as a little imp with a pitchfork. But it couldn't be further from the truth. He seeks our destruction. He wants to eat you alive. His desire is nothing more than to kill, to maim, and to devastate your life. And to this, Peter says, stand firm against him and be strong in your faith. We're to stand firm. See, there's nothing Satan can do to defeat or overpower God. That was clear on the day on Easter Sunday when Jesus was raised from the dead. Satan realized, there's nothing I can do against God. There is nothing I can throw at him. There's nothing within my arsenal that can touch him. But what I can do is attack his bride, the church. And can I tell you, I would feel no more personal attack than if someone went after my bride. And Satan knows if I can wound God in any way, it's to go after his children. See, our baptism in Christ has placed us then on the front line where we are defectives from Satan's ranks. We are now subject to his attempts to wound us. His darts and his arrows are aimed right at us. And Satan shoots his lies of deceit in three different areas I want to talk about. First of all, he wants to wound us and attack us with doubt. Satan wants to wound us with doubt. He wants us to ask, is that what God really said? Think about the very first lie that was ever spoken on this earth. Did God really say, you can't eat from any tree in the garden? Getting Eve and Adam began questioning what God really said. God's truth. To doubt God's goodness. Would God actually love you? Could God actually forgive that? Are you even worth forgiving? And those doubts begin to creep in. I know my life story. I don't know if God could forgive that. I don't know if I'm worth it. There are so many better people than I am. I am a failure. It's not worth trying to start over. Satan sows those seeds of doubt. The name Satan means accuser. He says you're a failure. God could never love you. And Satan accuses and accuses and accuses. 
Revelation talks about how we just stand before God throwing accusations of the saints. The second thing is he wants to discourage us. He wants to move our eyes from Jesus then to becoming our eyes being locked on the problems that are in front of us. And he discourages us and he waits for the moments that we are at the weakest. You think about any lion that attacks. If, I don't know if you've ever watched We've Got a House Cat that thinks it's the mightiest cat that's ever lived. He has seven pounds of fury. And uh, he hunts birds fruitlessly out in the backyard. It's, it's pathetic to watch. He's bright orange for one. He has the worst camouflage of any, any cat that ever existed. He's Garfield. Um, he's in the backyard and birds just, they look at him like, you've got to be kidding me. And they, they just do their thing. But the other day, a bird slammed into the window. And it was dazed bad. And he took full advantage. And he, he paraded that bird around like he had just, you know, brought down a hawk right out of the sky. <laughs> Satan waits for us to be at a moment of our weakness. You look at what happened with Jesus. Jesus is baptized by John the Baptist. There's an incredible moment where God speaks over him and he says, You are my son whom I love. With you I am well pleased. What an amazing moment between Jesus and the Father. And then Jesus goes into the wilderness and for 40 days he fasts. Does Satan attack Jesus in the moment he's baptized and there's all this spiritual and emotional backing behind him in this, this great moment of, of intimacy with the Father? No. He waits till he's hungry and he's tired. Satan waits till we need a nap and a snack. That's when he attacks. He waits for Jesus when he thinks, this is a moment I can attack. This is when his weakness is. And Satan comes in to discourage and to break us down. And third, he wants to deceive us. He wants to deceive us. He tempts us. He offers shortcuts in life. I think sin really is a shortcut. I can get what makes me feel good. I can get what makes me feel right by just taking this shortcut. Sin is full of shortcuts, deceiving us. It's worth it. Sin is worth it. It's not, it's, it, think about how great this is versus the cost. It's not that much. He diminishes the cost, makes it sound inconsequential and worthwhile. And ultimately, he deceives us into becoming more and more inward focused. Sin is really about ourselves. In James 1.14 it says, temptation comes from our own desires, which entice us and drag us away. These desires give birth to sinful actions, and when sin is allowed to grow, it gives birth to death. See, Satan doesn't want or need, get this, Satan isn't looking to go out there and recruit a bunch of Satan worshipers. I don't think he really cares if you leave this room and go out and become a Satan worshiper. I'm sure he'd be thrilled. Probably not his goal. Do you know what he look, is looking for? A bunch of self-worshippers. If we can begin, if he can get us to shift our eyes and deceive us into thinking it's about us and what we can do, even especially because it feels like it's for our own good, I'm making this choice because I need to choose me right now. In 1962, uh, The Twilight Zone had an episode entitled To Serve Man, and there was these alien creatures. You can go to the next slide. These alien creatures came down, and, and they offered to help humanity. They said, we want to give you our technology. 
And we want to give you uh, all these keys to having world peace and solving world hunger and energy shortages. And you just need to surrender some stuff to us. We'll have kind of an exchange here. And these aliens in, in the Twilight Zone get the humans to begin surrendering more and more of their autonomy, more and more of their things. And then when it was too late, someone finally realized the book they actually had was not just a book, it was a cookbook. And these were cannibals. And they were writing a cookbook to serve man. See, that's the enemy's goal. Feel like we're making good choices for us. I'm choosing things for me. I really need this. This is important. This is even good because Satan presents himself as an angel of light. Why We would never choose something if we're like, this is a really bad choice and it's going to hurt a lot of people and you'll be really sorry immediately. There's nothing good about this. But rather... It's the bait that entices you and says, this is what I need. This is going to be right. This is going to help me. Proverbs 16.25 says, there is a way that seems right, but in the end it leads to death. And so Peter says that our enemy wants to devour you. But we then are to stand firm. How? The Christian response to satanic opposition in, in our life is not to panic, not to flee, not to run around, ah! but firm resistance. Throughout the New Testament, we see both Paul and, 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 and Peter repeatedly and James call out to say that we need to stand firm. Peter says, stand firm against him and be strong in your faith. Very similarly, like I said, Paul says this in Ephesians 6. He says a final word, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. By doing what? How? Here's what Peter, or Paul goes on to say. He says, put on all of God's armor so that you will be able to stand firm against the strategies of the devil. If you can go to the next slide for me. For we are not fighting against flesh and blood enemies, but against evil rulers and authorities of the unseen world. against mighty powers in this dark world, and against evil spirits in the heavenly places. Therefore, put on every piece of God's armor so you will be able to resist the enemy in the time of evil. Then, after the battle, you will be standing firm. We see that again, standing firm. Stand your ground, putting on the belt of truth and the body armor of God's righteousness. For shoes, put on the peace that comes from the good news so that you will be fully prepared. In addition to all of these, hold up the shield of faith to stop the fiery arrows of the devil. Put on salvation as your helmet and take the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Pray in the Spirit at all times and on every occasion. Stay alert and be persistent in your prayers for all believers everywhere. I have a feeling that Peter and Paul were exchanging notes a little bit here. We see over and over again these same phrases coming through. Stay alert. Be alert. Stand your ground. Be ready to fight. And so... Paul says to the church, you have been given these tools. You have a shield of faith to extinguish every dart of doubt that the enemy would shoot at you. You have a helmet of salvation that guards our minds. We have shoes of peace that make us stand firm even when discouragement tries to rush over us like a wave. We have the sword of the Spirit which, with which to repel Satan's attacks. We have the belt of truth that overpowers every lie and every deceit of the enemy would try to unleash. And we are wrapped, I love this, we are wrapped in the righteousness of God. That is awesome. 
What tools we've been given. We don't stand unprepared. No soldier goes into battle going, I should really find something, uh-huh. Uh-oh. But rather we go out prepared. Dressed fully in the armor of God. With confidence. Knowing the result. And then look at what Peter says in verse 9. He says, remember that your family of believers all over the world is going through the same kind of suffering you are. You see, we don't walk alone. Mm -mm. Aren't you glad we don't do this alone? We are a family of believers. Together, united. Paul tells Timothy in 2 Timothy 2, he says, Join with me in suffering like a good soldier of Christ Jesus. You see, alone we are isolated. Alone we are vulnerable. But united we have strength. Ecclesiastes chapter 4, probably a section of verses you're very familiar with. The rest of Ecclesiastes can get a little bit uh, depressing, I'm going to be honest with you. But here, the author, Solomon, writes something really profound. He says, two people are better off than one, for they can help each other succeed. If one person falls, the other can reach out and help. But someone who falls alone is in real trouble. Moving ahead to verse 12, he says, a person standing alone can be attacked and defeated. But two can stand back to back and conquer. Three are even better, for a triple braided cord is not easily broken. See, there's a purpose and a reason that Jesus gave us the church. We're here for one another. You are not just here for you. You're not just here to fill a Sunday morning or to fulfill an obligation or a feeling of guilt for not showing up. You are here for your brother. You are here for your sister. We are united together. And together the church, the Bible says, the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Peter concludes all this by saying, in his kindness, God called you to share in his eternal glory by means of Christ Jesus. So, after you have suffered a little while, He will restore, support, and strengthen you. And He will place you on a firm foundation. All power to Him forever. Amen. You see, victory, church, is at hand. Say that with me. Victory is at hand. Say that again. Victory is at hand. Victory is ours through Jesus. Peter assures them of this. He says it's coming. Right now, yes, there are struggles. Right now, yes, we, we, we have to go through suffering for a little while. But victory is at hand. Don't you see the world that is unseen right now? In the Old Testament, there's a story in 2 Kings. There's this king of this area called Aram. And he hates Israel. And so he's trying to destroy the, Israel. And so he gets his counselors of war together, his generals, and he has this council of, council of war, and he says, we need to kill Israel. And they come up with a brilliant plan. They're like, well, no one's going to see this coming. And they attack Israel. Problem was, Israel wasn't there. He's like, oh, we missed him. Okay, okay, we'll come up with a new plan. They come up with a new plan. They know Israel's going to be there. They know they have a plan. They attack. It doesn't work again. And he realizes something fishy is going on here. After a few times, he brings all his generals together and he says, we have a problem here. I think that we have got a leak. 
Someone is telling the enemy what's going on here. I think there's a mole, and I want to know who it is now. And his generals look at each other. We pick up in verse 12, and here's their response to him. They said, none of us, my lord the king, said one of his officers. But Elisha the prophet, who was in Israel, tells the king of Israel the very words you speak in your bedroom. That would be disconcerting. So the king responds, go find out where he is, the king ordered, so I can send men and capture him. The report came back, he is in Dothan. Dothan is a small village. So then he sent his horses and chariots and a strong force there. They went by night and surrounded the city. So when the servant of the man of God, this is Elisha's servant, goes out, probably to collect water from the city center in the morning, he looks around the hills around them, and it is filled, it is covered with horses and chariots, and they've surrounded the city. And I like this response of what uh, Elisha's servant says. He says, Oh my Lord, what shall we do? I think he's talking to Elisha, oh my Lord, but I just think that's so funny. Oh my Lord. He says, oh my Lord, what shall we do? Don't be afraid, the prophet answered. Those who are with us are more than those that are with them. And I think his uh, servant's response had to be, okay, well, uh, Elisha, there's you, that's one. Me, two. Who else you got? And then Elisha prays. And Elisha prayed and he said, O Lord, open his eyes that he may see. And then the Lord opened the servant's eyes and he looked and he saw the hills full of horses and chariots of fire around Elisha. And the enemy was driven away and destroyed that day because of the victory that was won by not what was seen with human eyes, but what was going on in the spiritual realm. And at this very moment, church, there is a whole other world being lived out entirely on this spiritual plane. Oh Lord, open our eyes so that we too might see what is going on in the spiritual realm. That we wouldn't get so caught up with the day-to-day and the physical things and the things that make us happy and the things we use to satisfy our physical nature. But Lord, that we would see what's going on in the physical realm, beyond the physical realm, in the spiritual realm, the wars that are raging around us. And Lord, that we would see with your eyes what rages around us and the victory that is imminently ours. But don't let us lose our alertness. In the Second Kings passage, you underline. I, I want you to underline that. If you can go back to that Second Kings passage, find where it says, where Elisha says, "Those who are with us are more than those who are with them." Underline it in your Bible if you can. Highlight it. Put a little star next to it. Do something. I don't know how you mark your Bible, but mark that in your Bible. Those who are with us are are more than those who are are are, are, are uh, sorry. Those who are with us are more than those who are with them. There's a very similar passage in the New Testament in 1 John 4, 4, and I mentioned it earlier. And it says this, the one who is in you is greater. So here in 2 Kings, we've got those who are with us are more. And 1 John 4, it says, the one who is in you is greater. There's a difference there. In one, he is with us. In the other, he is in us. 
Greater is the one who is in us. Jesus is our living king. He's not just with us, but he lives within us. He resides within us. The power of God is in us. And so, Lord, I pray that you would open our eyes that we would see. Jesus, that your triumph would be our triumph. This morning we pray that your triumph would be our triumph. In World War II, it was 1944 in the winter, it was December, and the Allied forces had already stormed Normandy and they had pushed the Nazi army back within the borders of Germany and the Nazi war machine had been destroyed. And it was just known to be a matter of time before the war was over, literally just months. But the Allied line had been spread far and thin across the entire border of Germany. But in the rest of Europe that had been freed, there were celebrations, there were parades through Paris, there was all kinds of things. People were trying to get life back to life, things back to life as normal. And Hitler, a defeated foe already, he was already guaranteed to be defeated. There was no chance out of this, but yet in the throes of death, he threw one last attempt that was known as the Battle of the Bulge. One last dart to try to throw the Allies back into the ocean. And in the Battle of the Bulge, because the Allies were caught unaware, because they were not aware and prepared, almost 21,000 Allied soldiers lost their lives during that battle because they were caught unaware by an enemy that was already defeated. Today, church, I challenge you to not be caught unaware. Yes, our enemy is defeated. We have victory in Jesus. He is within us. Greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. But let me tell you, we need to stand firm. Be prepared for whatever the enemy would throw at us as a defeated foe. Jesus, I pray right now with this congregation, with our heads bowed and our eyes closed, Lord, I pray that we would begin living in complete and full victory in your name. That, Lord, as you said in the book of John, the thief comes only to steal, to kill, and to destroy, but you came that we might have life and have it to the fullest. And today, we claim that life. We lay claim to it and we hold on to it. No matter what the enemy may bring against us, we hold on to that life. And we celebrate victory in the name of Jesus. We claim victory in the mighty name of Jesus. Church, let's stand together this morning. I want us to sing this song together as an anthem of victory in Jesus' name. Let's sing it with, with conviction and joy this morning. My God, my. 
Have a blessed week. We'll see you next time.